Good morning. We getting there? There it is. Yeah? It's getting closer? Ah. Good morning. Welcome. We're so glad to have you here with us this morning at Randall Church. My name is Milo Wilson. I'm the pastor of Renewal Church, the church plant, but I get to be here almost every other week and be able to spend some time with you. And so you're getting used to me and I'm getting used to you. And so it's, uh, we're getting used to one another. And so that's good. Um, this morning I want to start, how many of you have watched the show America's Got Talent or are you interested in it whatsoever, mostly young people? Uh, that's all right. Um, have you ever seen the person who spins plates on the top of sticks? Like they have a whole, sometimes they'll start the stage and they'll start um, where they'll set the whole stage up and they'll start at one end of the stage and they'll get a plate spinning, they'll run across the stage and they kind of keep everything going. I've always, always wanted to learn how to do that with someone else's plates. Um, I think that would be a lot of fun to do. Like, but really, you, when you watch someone do that, they run across and run around the stage like a crazy person trying to keep track of all of those different things and trying to keep them all spinning smoothly. Uh, <clears throat> there's a book that I've read called Grace-Based Parenting, uh, and there's the author, Tim Kimmel, uses this as, as basically an illustration of what it's like to be a parent and the idea of just running around the stage and keeping track. And so he does the whole thing on the stage as an illustration, and if I could do it, I would do it for you you, but I can't, and I couldn't even come close to it. But really, when you have a couple, you've got the husband and the wife, there's kind of two plates that are spinning. So if you get those two plates spinning, you feel pretty good about yourself. Um, I'm not, again, I'm not able to do this. I am able, however, to ride a unicycle, and so I'm a little bit of a uh, fool, but I'm able to do that. And so but there's those who can even do that, ride the unicycle, keep the plate spinning, keep all of those things uh, going and keep it maintained. But if you've got two people and you've got two jobs, now you've added two plates that are spinning because there's two individuals. Now you add the jobs or the work that you have to do in the day. Now you've got four plates that are spinning. And so along the lines of my family, we've got four kids. And so you've got four plates spinning because of the two of you. And now you add four kids and you have those four plates spinning. And you can just imagine uh, kind of running around the platform, trying to keep track of all of these different things. And some of you come here this morning and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, when Tim Kimmel uses this in illustration, what he does then is he adds to the mix a, a saucer, and he puts that thing on a spin and, and it just wobbles all over the place and somehow he's able to keep it going. And he says, this is basically what happens. Now you've got your four kids. Now one of them has become a teenager. And, and, and this plate is wobbling or this, this saucer's wobbling all over the place. He says, it's not quite a plate and it's not really, it doesn't know what it is. And it wants all the rights and privileges of a plate, but it doesn't look like one or act like one yet. And it, so he's just spinning that thing and it's wobbling all over the place. And you can't keep, seem to keep track of all of those things. And many of you come here this morning and, and you had a teenager who pushed your buttons this morning before 8 o'clock. Uh, like, it, it seemed like as soon as you got up, man, that teenager was driving you crazy. In my world, I haven't dealt with that yet. I've been a youth pastor, which makes me think that I know what I'm doing. I'm learning. I have absolutely no clue uh, when it comes. And, and I get, think of all the people that I helped give uh, direction with or instruction to who had teenage kids. And I was telling them, oh, this is how you do it. This is how you deal with teenagers. I had no idea what I was talking about. So I probably need to write them each a letter of apology. But I do have a two-year-old. And if you've got a two-year-old, well, mine's three now, but if you've got a baby or a child in this range, like it's, 
it's a special kind of crazy. And, and when you're dealing with, you kind of wish that Fisher Price had come out with like a taser so that, <laughs> not one that would, you know, not like the police taser where you would, you know, really injure the child, but, but like a, a two or three year old sized taser where you could, you know, just kind of zap them and let them know, you know, you need to relax a little bit. Um, take a time out and lay down for a few minutes. But, so I came across the list. This is if you've got a two or three year old, if you've got someone in this range, this is a list of the property laws for toddlers. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. Yep, you get the idea. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like the one that is mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) Some of you come this morning dealing with life and you're trying to keep the plates spinning. And if you've got children, uh, teenagers or toddlers or anywhere in between, or now your kids are out of the house, in the midst of that craziness, at some point, they go to sleep. Sometimes it's a struggle to get that to happen. But once they do, if you're like we are, all day long there's been some tension there. But at that point, before you go to bed, you check in on that child and they seem so innocent. They seem so beautiful because they're asleep and they can't fight back. And, uh, and you kiss them on the forehead and, and, you know, you just give them a hug or whatever it is. And, and you love that child so much, even though a few hours ago you were ready to light them up with a taser. And um, that tension is real. Uh, the people we are closest to and we experience the greatest amount of love and affection, we also experience the greatest amount of conflict. In friendships, we are on again and off again. In marriages, uh, before the marriage, the opposites attract, attract, and now in marriage, opposites can sometimes attack one another. Um, in the church, author and pastor Rick Ezel says this. He says, in his church, the old saying goes, we long to live in heaven together in God's glory, to live together down on earth. Well, that's another story. This week globally is also one of uncertainty. If you looked around this week, you're going to see Russia begin airstrikes in Syria. The hurricane has borne down, bears down on the east coast. Uh, There's talk again of a U.S. government shutdown. And of course, there's a shooting in Oregon this week. It's a very difficult week, a difficult time. When you look at these things, you look at the conflict, how do we deal with these things? Well, that's where this series comes in. This is where we've been here in 1 Peter uh, verse 1. Or chapter 1, verse 3, gives us living hope. How do we deal with this? This is the verse kind of for the whole series. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His grace mercy, He has caused us to be what? Born again into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus. Born again like you had never been alive before. Remember Nicodemus talked to Jesus about this and he said, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb? No, you are to be born again spiritually, not in a water birth type of way, but a spiritual way. There's something about you that is now new. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so because it is a new creation, all things become new, Christians have a hope that the world does not have. When you deal with these struggles, when you deal with the family, parenting, relational type of struggles, you should have hope that the people around you do not have. When you look at the news headlines this week and they've been difficult to swallow, there should be some type of hope inside of you that your coworkers do not have. There should be hope that is in your heart that the people sitting in the classroom in your class do not have. There should be some type of hope that your unsaved family members can see in you that they do not understand why it is not in their hearts as well. That's what happens when Jesus Christ gives you a new life, a new hope. You are born again because of what he has done when he resurrected from the dead. In the second century, uh, Tertullian said this. He said the Roman government was so suspicious of churches that they would send spies into the church to check them out. And this is what he reported that they said. These Christians are a very strange people. They meet in an empty room to worship. They have no image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any moment. And my, how they love this Jesus and how they love one another. What a compelling and attracting grace story, isn't it? That this is what the church is about. There is hope there. There is love that they've never seen anywhere else. The Roman government sending spies to try to figure out what is going on in this church, which is growing and blossoming. And all that they can say and all that they can pinpoint is there is something unique, something different about those people. There is a living hope inside of them that we have not seen elsewhere. And they love and care for one another. Conflict is inevitable. When two people are together, there's potential for disagreement. The way that you maintain an engine or a motor or a mechanism, a moving machine, there's always going to be friction. If that machine is moving, it is going somewhere, there's going to be friction involved. And you have to maintain that. That's why you get an oil change every 3,000 or some of you 12,000 miles. Uh, you have to go through that process of maintaining things so that they work, so that it work properly. The only way to stop conflict altogether is to shut that machine down. The same is in relationships. When you're in relationship with someone, if it's just two or if it's an entire church, there are going to be some friction that happens along the way. The only way that you could ever put that friction entirely out of the way is to shut the machine down, to shut the relationship down and no longer be in relationship with one another. Yet that is not what we see in Scripture. That is not what we are taught to do. That is not how we are supposed to relate to one another. In the church, we have the tendency to believe that conflict is foreign, that it's an alien, an alien form that we take from the world, that that's what conflict is about. But really, we need to remember that even Peter, the author of this book, and Paul, the great apostle Paul, they experienced a great deal of conflict with one another. Paul told the Galatians that when Peter came to visit the Gentile congregation in Antioch, he said this, Galatians 2.11, I opposed him to his face, for he was clearly in the wrong. Peter and Paul weren't always best friends. They experienced conflict, but at the end of the day, they were able to work through it. They fought a lot of times in their lives, but we hardly remember it when we look at scriptures. Why? Because they resolved it. They diffused conflict. 
And when we look here in the passage today, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, we're going to see five principles for diffusing conflict. Let's start there this morning. Principle one, walk in your teammates' shoes. Principle one, walk in your teammates' shoes. This is beginning in verse 8, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. To be sympathetic means to understand and validate someone's feelings. It does not mean that we have to validate their ideas. Being sympathetic means that we have to validate someone's feelings. It doesn't mean that we have to validate their ideas. You don't have to agree with someone every time. Sympathy meets two basic things. It means that we are going to be understood, and it also means that we need to feel affirmed. We need to understand one another. We need to affirm that the person across the table has feelings as well. The American Indian said this proverb, I will not criticize my brother until I have walked a mile in his moccasins. Peter's saying that we are on the same team. We are in the same marriage. We are in the same family here as a church. So family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't compete with each other. We complement each other. We minimize conflict by maximizing cooperation. We are on the same team. Take a moment to walk in your teammates' shoes. Take a moment to think about what that person went through this week, the pain and suffering that they went through. Maybe you're the one who's had a difficult week. Take a moment to think about the celebration that the person next to you is having, that they had a new grandchild that was born, that they got a new job, that something fantastic happened in their life, so they are going to have a difficult time perhaps being empathetic with your situation at this moment, at this time. That does not make them a bad person. Take a, take a minute, walk in your teammates' shoes. Great teammates display three important actions that diffuse conflict, and it shows them here in this verse. Love, compassion, and humility. Love, it says, I will look out for the other's best interest. It says we're going to stop attacking one another, and we're going to attack the problem. Realize that the person next to you is on your team. If you love them and care for them, you're going to realize that they may not be the problem. There may be a different problem that you can work together on. Compassion says not not just talk about loving one another and just saying that we're going to love one another, but actually demonstrating that with doing the difficult things. When we talk about love on someone's wedding day, I feel like you have to break it down as to what love is because love is a difficult thing on that day to say, man, I just love this person. And if you've been to a wedding recently, and it seems like the younger they are, and I got married at 20, so I'm just as much a fool as the next person. But they really think that they just love each other enough that everything is going to just be clean sailing. And it's just not the case. That's not reality. And after you've been married for a little while, and after you've lived with someone for a little while, you start to realize that the way that the toilet paper goes on the toilet paper dispenser, it matters, right? And you start to realize that the clothes and the hamper at the end of the bed, those things start to matter. And that, that all starts to be part of what it means to love and care for one another, Compassion says, let's not just talk about it, let's demonstrate it by doing the difficult things, how we say and how we act towards one another. Thirdly, humility. Humility says, love is not proud. This is a difficult one for me, I have to admit. Love is not proud. It admits fault. It's honest about our weaknesses, our needs, our failures. It uses these phrases often, I need your help. I can't do it by myself. What do you have to offer here? I was wrong. 
Please forgive me. That's what humility means. Great teammates display these three. Love, compassion, and humility. Will you take a moment to walk in your teammates' shoes? Principle number two, give a blessing. Give a blessing. This starts in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is verse 9. Now it gets hard because in verse 9, he, he turns the script a little bit. Up through verse 8, you're talking to people who are nice to you. You're talking to people who are your friends, your companions, your loved ones. And you're saying, uh, really, at the end of the day, you should do your best to love the person who is loving and caring towards you. But you flip the script in verse 9 and you start talking about people who are not as loving and caring towards you. In fact, they're an, an entirely the opposite. And each of you has someone in your life that is difficult to work with. What do you do when someone is really grouchy and mean and gripey and insults and tries to hurt you intentionally? You're no longer talking about someone who's made a mistake that you love and you realize, listen, they just made a mistake. At this point, we're talking about someone who is actually intentionally going after you. How do you handle that? Verse 9 tells us how. And you see, this is very close to Peter's heart. There's a time in Peter's life when he always fought evil with evil. When he fought reviling with reviling. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is about to be taken? What does Peter do? Well, first of all, remember Jesus. There's a great scene. Because Jesus stands there in the garden. He's been there praying all night and now they've come to take him. And they come to take Jesus of Nazareth. And Who is it that you are seeking, Jesus says. Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he respond? I am he. And as they are coming, as he speaks those words, there's like a a cosmic explosion, if you will, and it knocks them all down on their backsides. Who was it that you're looking for again? And in that moment, Peter starts, his response is to return evil for evil. That was a very evil night. There was nothing good about what was going to happen that night. There was nothing good about the fact they were coming at night to take Jesus away. He had been available all day long. He had been in public continually, but they were gonna come at night and take him away. And what did Peter do? What was his response? Evil for evil. He was going to fight back with the sword. He took out his sword. He saw the servant of high priest, went for his head and cut his ear off. What was Jesus' response? He said, Peter, Peter, Put away your sword. Don't you know that those who live by the sword will die by the sword? Those who return evil for evil will do what? They'll die by the sword. When Peter is writing here in 1 Peter, when he is writing in this book, you have to imagine this letter that he has penned to the church. You have to remember that this is fresh in his mind. That moment when Jesus looked at him and said, you're not going to do that anymore, Peter. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. You're not going to do that anymore, Peter. See, conflict is like, it's like standing next to a small fire. If you're standing next to a small fire and you've got two buckets in your hand, One bucket is full of water and the other bucket is full of gasoline. How are you going to respond to conflict? Uh, Is there going to be words of hostility, anger, and abuse? Are there going to be words of acceptance, value, and kindness? The world says, get even. 
throw the gas on the fire. Watch it spread. Verse 9 says, give a blessing. Throw a bucket of water on the fire and put it out before it hurts you and everyone else around you. Principle number two, give a blessing. Principle number three in verse 10, control your tongue. Control your tongue. For whoever desires to love life and see good old days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I often do a lot of message prep and just time, studying time, just down the road here at the NOCO gas station. I tell people that I'm going to the coffee shop, but really I'm just at the gas station. I do a lot of prep there because it's just a spot where if I'm, sometimes if I'm in the building here or in North Tonawanda at the church in North Tonawanda, there are just some things that I get distracted with and I start, you know, vacuuming or I start uh, hanging signs or I start taking down old bulletins. Those are just, I, I have difficulty kind of separating that away and, and then if I'm in that setting, there's nothing there that I'm responsible for. If the trash doesn't get taken out, Someone else is going to have to do it. It is not my job, not my responsibility. So it's a good place for me to study, even though sometimes it gets noisy. So at the end of the day, or mid-afternoon, school lets out. And all of a sudden, particularly this week, there was a day this week that the girls' soccer team must have had a game from Williamsville South because all of a sudden that place was just crawling with girls in uniform. And, and all of them needed to get their cafe moke latte before the soccer game. Um, but if you're in that, in that scene, the volume level of the room went through the roof. Uh, there's, uh, and, and as the volume goes through the roof, the content of the conversation and the language itself plummets. Poor language, poor conversations. What are they talking about? And it wasn't just the girl, like, there's, there's, there's a matter of fact that just generally speaking, a level of maturity can be noticed with how someone carries themselves and how they speak and how they talk. The signs of aging are not the same signs as maturing. Some people never grow up even though they grow older. How do we know if we're mature? One mark of a spiritual and emotional maturity is the ability to master our mouth and to tame our tongue. As we mature, we ought to be able to control our tongue. We ought to be able to learn the steps, the process of what it means to bite our tongue in, in those situations. And that doesn't always mean uh, the language that you're using. Sometimes it just means that this situation, it is not appropriate for me to speak up at this time. That's something you learn as you mature. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin has lectured throughout the country on the powerful and often negative impact of words he has asked audience if they can go 24 hours without saying an unkind word to anyone. 24 hours. And he'll poll the audience. He basically asks them, uh, if, is there anyone in the audience? Can you go 24 hours? And, and there's a few sheepish people who will raise their hand and say, yes, I can or I have gone 24 hours. And then he'll ask, uh, what about those of you who cannot? And there'll be even audibly, the people will laugh or will say, absolutely not. No, I can't. He responds, those who can't answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you are addicted to alcohol. If you cannot go 24 hours without smoking, you are addicted to nicotine. If you cannot go 24 hours without saying unkind words about another, you are addicted and you have lost control over your tongue. 
Remember as Isaiah prophesied when they led Jesus to be crucified, what? He did not open his mouth. There was a level of maturity there. He did not open his mouth. He went silently like a lamb who was going to be slaughtered. He who above all people had the right to retaliate with words and he would know exactly what to say. He chose to demonstrate perfect self-control in order to accomplish his redemptive work. Jesus kept his tongue. Principle three, control your tongue. Principle four, verse 11, pursue peace. Pursue peace. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. A former fireman can be a very dangerous arsonist. In North Tonawanda about a year ago, we had a, what they believed to be a volunteer fireman. They were never actually able to line down specifically. But they believe that this is a volunteer fireman because they knew and understand all too well the response of the fire department. And so as an arson, they went around. First, they started with a dumpster fire and they, they had that lit and they had it burning. And when the, the firemen went and responded to that call, the next thing you know, on another side of town, there was a, a, a vehicle fire and the vehicle had started on fire. And, and so they went to respond to that. Now their forces were divided in two. And that was when he, sent, he set fire to an apartment building. And there were six apartments that burned to the ground because the firemen were split and they had no way they could respond in those ways. They were split between the two. The job of a peacemaker, the job of a fireman is to defuse fires. The job of a peacemaker is to resolve and defuse conflict, not start fights. And when those who are supposed to be peacemakers are the ones starting the fires, it is a very dangerous, dangerous place. This verse says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There's a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. There's a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. What do peacekeepers do? Peacekeepers often avoid confrontation to keep the peace. Peacemakers, however, as opposed to peacekeepers, embrace confrontation to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's a Christ-centered book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, he uses the illustration of a slippery slope. And in Buffalo, we understand that all too well, don't we? You ever stood on the front of your front steps of your house and realized it is sheer ice and if you take one step, you could go down those steps, pop, 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 before you even blink. Or you stand at the end of the driveway and it's fun, sometimes it's fun when you're little as you're a kid, you can stand at the end of the driveway and it doesn't matter whether you've got tread on the bottom of your shoes or not and you can just slide right down to the end and you can just stand still and wiggle a little bit and you're skating, right? So that's fun if you want to do that. But he uses the illustration of a slippery slope with that same idea. You're standing at the top of a hill, a slippery slope. And at one side, if you go too far to the right, you can lose your footing and slide down the hill to the right. If you go too far to the left, you're gonna lose your footing. You're gonna slide down the hill to the left. And there are unhealthy responses on either side. First, you have escape responses. If you step too far to the right and you start sliding down that slope, eventually you're gonna slide into depression and even in the worst case scenario, suicide. If you're at the top of the slope and you start sliding down the other side, the attack responses, you may end up being an angry person. And the farther you slide, you get to the extreme, you may become homicidal. That's the extreme. That's the slippery slope. 
when you experience conflict, it's easy to become defensive or antagonistic. You can slide one way or another. If you want to stay on top of the slippery slope, you need to ask God to help you to develop the ability to live out the gospel in a peacemaking process. There's a range that it's your responsibility as a peacemaker. Turn away from evil, do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. There's a running after here. There's a chasing. There's a desire to pursue peace, to work for it. There's some exhaustion that is gonna come from the process of pursuing peace. Peacemakers intentionally seek reconciliation. When was the last time you expended a great deal of energy as a peacemaker to pursue peace? Peacemakers realize that they may disagree, but it's their responsibility to never be disagreeable. Peacemakers may disagree, but they will never be disagreeable. Principle four, will you pursue peace? Principle five, verse 12, keep calm and trust God. Keep calm and trust God. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I know a lot of Christians who are enduring life, enduring pain, enduring trials. You talk to them, you say, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm making it through. I'm getting through one day at a time. Now, It's okay if you do that one day at a time for a week or maybe a month, but if you start doing that one day at a time uh, for a year or longer, year after year after year, and if you go, how are you doing? You say, well, okay. At some point you have to wonder, is the spirit of God dwelling in this person or is it the spirit of Eeyore? If the spirit of God dwells inside of us, There should be more than just enduring life. We should not just be enduring life. You should be able to enjoy life and realize that there's a sovereign God who is in control of me and he even allows the good and the gnarly people that come into our lives to be there for his own purpose. I don't have to worry about people who are up to evil against me. God's already taken notice of that. God has already marked that down. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's watching over me. He's going to sort that out in the end. So I don't have to be so worried about it. I don't have to be the guy who's going to exact revenge. I don't have to be worried about that person next to me. At the end of the day, that's a high motivation to snap out of it and get past enduring. Are you here today? Are you enduring Or is there a living hope that burns inside of you? Why should we keep calm? Because it shows that we know and understand that we belong to God the Father. If we can keep calm and trust God, we know and we understand who the God Father is. Did not God choose to walk in our shoes by coming to the earth? Did not God give us a blessing by granting us abundant and eternal life? Did not God take the initiative to bring lost sinners to the Father? Didn't God the Father do that for you and for me? Can't we trust that he can do oh so much more? 
God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovely, Christ died for us. When we rejected him, Christ died for us. Christ died for you and he died for me in our absolute worst day. That day may be in your past. You have a story where you were five years old and you were smoking and you were drinking and stealing cars and then Jesus saved your life. But you also might have a story that gets worse than it is today. Your story may turn out that in the next year, the next five years, that you make a really foolish decision and the whole bottom falls out. If that were the case, do you know and do you realize that Jesus died for you on that day as well? Jesus gave himself for you. When you were unlovely, he died for you. When you rejected him, he loved you and died for you. Can you keep calm and trust God? Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we come to the end of the service. We evaluate our own lives. God, I pray you would draw us to the cross. There's some here now who have come to church today, but they've never actually come to know you, Jesus. Yes, you've come here today and you've never met him personally, to be personally forgiven by him, to trust to be able to be calm enough to trust that God has it under control. You may be a wonderful person, you may be a churchgoer, a very religious and devoted person, but you have never put your trust in God and put your place in your life where you surrender all the lordship and authority to Jesus Christ. We want to give you the opportunity before you leave this morning to know that and understand that. Verse 12 said, his ears are open to your prayer. Lord, those who are here, if you are here this morning, you've wandered from, you need to come back home. You're in this room or you're listening later online. Lord, they need to come and find your forgiveness, your love on a personal level. If you're here this morning, do you realize you're not God? You're not big enough to handle this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We will all come short, whether that was five years ago, whether that's 50 years from now, you will come short. What will you do? Realize you are not God. Recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then we receive. If you're here this morning, you want to receive Christ. John 1, 12. As many received him, to them he called the children, the family, the adopted child of God the Father. Would you receive him this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Children of God, family, are you tired of spinning plates? Are you tired of running around trying to manage it all? Do you realize that there's hope to be found? That in conflict, which we all have conflict, in in tense situations, which we are all living in, do you know and understand that there is a living hope that resides in you because Jesus Christ lives in your heart? Will you ask yourself these five questions? 
Because if you're going to live in hope, you will need to live to diffuse conflict. Will you walk in your teammates' shoes? Will you give a blessing? Will you control your tongue? Will you pursue peace? Will you keep calm and trust that God is who he says he is? The way, the truth, and the life. We're gonna spend some time this morning, a time of communion, a sharing of the family meal. We need to be able to come into communion knowing that we are peacemakers, someone who is going to diffuse conflict. Give you a few moments this morning to set your heart right before the Lord and say, God, is there a situation where I need to walk in my teammates' shoes, a situation where I need to give a blessing, a situation where I need to control my tongue, I need to pursue peace, or I need to trust that you are who you say you are, Lord? We'll give you that time now.